The enzymes are proteins. I think we mentioned that when we talk about proteins, one of the functions of proteins are being part of enzymes. The enzymes are catalysts. In chemistry, we call catalyst to substances that will favor some chemical reaction. They will uh, improve or in increase the speed of reaction in some particular ways. And that's what the enzymes are, are catalysts, biological catalysts. They are proteins, and their function is listed here, increase the rate of chemical reactions. Some particular characteristics of the enzymes are that they are not changed by the reaction. They can be reused. They just increase the rate. They do not change the nature of the reaction. How they increase the rate? Well, for a chemical reaction to happen, there must be like an amount of energy that is invested, and that's called activation energy. For a chemical reaction to go on, especially in a biological environment, some energy has to be invested. And if we lower that amount of energy for the chemical reaction to happen, that reaction will go faster, will happen faster. And that's what the enzymes do. They lower the activation energy for a particular chemical reaction. Wait, so lowering of activation means energy makes the reaction go faster? <coughs> yes. And we're going to explain that here. The energy required is called activation energy. And that activation energy can be understood as that particular amount of work and any, any other activity that we need to put into so that reaction in this case will happen. The molecules, the molecules per se, they don't go into the chemical reaction spontaneously. There must be some energy involved to that chemical reaction. And that energy usually comes from a different chemical reaction. Most of these chemical reactions, they are not isolated, they don't happen just in uh, islands, they are linked to many other chemical reactions. And for instance, if we have some two chemical substances mixed and we increase the heat, that particular energy in terms of heat that will favor that chemical reaction between those two substances. And we say increasing the heat, increasing the temperature, we will increase the rate of reaction. Simple example happens when we want to, when we add sugar to our coffee or tea, it will dissolve faster if it's hot tea than if it's cold tea. The heat is putting energy into the chemical reaction. Sometimes the heat has negative effects, especially in biologic, biological environments, because the heat will affect the enzymes, which are proteins, in that sense. The enzymes help to chemical reactions to happen in biological environments when the temperature is a certain level. Like body temperature is 98.6, 37 Celsius. Chemical reactions happen optimally at that temperature. Talking about chemical reactions in our body, physiology. For instance, the digestion process. If we mix carbohydrates, if we eat carbohydrates, 
we mix it with the enzyme in our saliva, which is amylase, the reaction will happen optimally inside our mouth, where the temperature is 37. If the temperature is lower than 37, the chemical reaction will happen, but much slower. Now, if I add an enzyme which will lower the activation energy even more, well, that chemical reaction will happen, even perhaps at lower temperatures, but differently. It will be held by those enzymes. So summarizing, the chemical reactions won't happen spontaneously. Energy is required. That is called the activation energy. And the enzymes help lowering that activation energy. So making, making the chemical reaction easier uh, to happen. That mechanism, yes. Chemical reactions don't happen spontaneously. They need some activation energy. And uh, that's what the enzymes help with. They lower that activation energy, so make these chemical reactions easier to happen. We can understand this representing with graphs, like if we see the reactants up here, in order to reach this other part, they have to go over this wall, which has determined height. And that represents the activation energy. But if we lower that wall, lower the activation energy, so it will be easier for the reactants to go to the other side and turn into the product. So this is what the enzymes do. They lower the activation energy, making the uh, reactants uh, combine easier. Now, how exactly this happens? The enzymes, we said they are proteins. And in this graph, we represent two substrates, which are the reactants, A and B, combining. But if there is an enzyme present favoring this chemical reaction, we can understand this with these figures. The enzyme will be this big molecule, and this enzyme will have two places, which are called active sites, that fit the reactants exactly there. Substrate A and substrate B will fit into those active sites of the enzyme. If they combine, well, they will fit into those places, and when, what happens when they fit into those active sites? You see the substrate A and B are closer to each other. And that way, the enzyme is favoring the combination of the two reactants. Finally, what we see is that the reaction happened. Now we have product C and D, which are different than A and B. And the enzyme is intact. So the enzyme is just, it, it helped. It helped the combination of these two elements. In many cases, what the enzymes do is bring the molecules closer, make the molecules uh, <clears throat> get in contact with places that have more chances to react, and in that way will favor the chemical reaction, which can be understood as we lower the activation energy because to bring these two elements closer, it may require some energy. Well, the enzyme will bring them closer lower that energy, make it more possible for them to combine. And that enzyme is a protein, and it has active sites for the substrates. If we change that enzyme, any means, we may change how the enzyme will work, and the enzyme probably will not work, and that reaction will not happen. The enzymes are named according to the chemical reaction where they participate. And the names usually have the, 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 the suffix ACE, A-S-E, like phosphatase is an enzyme that removes phosphate groups. 
hydrolase is uh, an enzyme that promotes hydrolysis. Isomerase rearrange the atoms or special configuration of an element. Helicases, as in DNA, they break down the helix. Polymerase, like in DNA, add new units and make it a polymer. So always related with the action, always ending with the suffix ace. <coughs> What we have, what we have to do is study enzymes because they are the basis of many diseases. <clears throat> These are some examples of diseases related with deficiency of enzymes or excessive amount of these enzymes. Some examples here: the amylase. This enzyme, the amylase, is an enzyme that we make in the mouth, the salivary glands make this enzyme and is used to break down carbohydrates. As soon as we put carbohydrates in our mouth, this enzyme starts to break down the, the carbohydrates. It is also produced by the pancreas. So when the carbohydrates that we eat reach the pancreas, or the small intestine, the pancreas will produce amylase and help further digestion. Well, if someone has pancreatitis, which is an inflammation of the pancreas, we choose to measure the amount of amylase that we have in our blood. And if it's increased in levels, then we think the pancreas is inflamed and it's producing an excessive amount of amylase. We use the concept of this enzyme to diagnose a disease like pancreatitis. Or LDH, which stands for lactate dehydrogenase. This enzyme is used for diagnosis of myocardial infarction. Just taking one of the examples. Yes? Um, are most enzymes uh, acidic? What's that? Are most enzymes acidic? No. It depends. Depending of uh, each enzyme has a particular pH, which is called optimal pH. And in that sense, amylase works at pH 6.5 to 7. And other enzymes will work at different pH. When someone has a myocardial infarction, which is the death of cells, where the enzyme is, is inside the cells. So if the cells die, these enzymes will be released to the blood. And if someone has chest pain, and we measure in the blood the level of LDH and it's high, where is that coming from? It's coming from some cells that are dying and releasing the enzyme to the blood. And we use this knowledge in that sense. So these are some enzymes that are very common to, to use for diagnosis. The last in the list are called transaminases, AST, ALT. They are particularly important in the diagnosis of hepatitis. For the same reason, hepatitis is an inflammation of the liver. So if the cells of the liver are damaged, injured, they will die and they will release the enzymes they have in the cytoplasm to the blood. So these enzymes will be increased in levels in the blood, meaning your liver cells are getting damaged by some, in some way. Yeah? Do you want us to know the diseases and kind of enzymes associated with them? No, I'm just taking examples of that. What are the factors that can make uh, an enzyme, um, uh, or can affect the chemical reaction mediated or held by the enzyme? We measure the rate of a reaction, and we can know how well the enzyme is working. But there are factors that can influence a chemical reaction, like temperature, pH, concentration of cofactors and coenzymes. What are those? Besides the enzyme, there are other small molecules that help even more. And they are called cofactors, coenzymes. Some chemical reactions, we have those. How much enzyme, how much substrate? 
and some possible effect of other products, some other products, other chemicals may inhibit or stimulate these reactions. So these are factors that can influence the enzymatic activity. Like we were saying, the temperature, if um, the reaction happens in the mouth with saliva and carbohydrates, if I increase, if I increase the temperature, let's say I isolate the saliva with a piece of carbohydrate in a beaker and heat it up, at some point the enzyme, the reaction will be slower. I'm increasing the temperature, but too much, and I'm destroying the enzyme, so there will be no more enzyme, and the reaction will go slower. If I cool it too much and bring it to temperature 25 Celsius or 20 Celsius, the reaction will be slower. Temperature has an effect on the action of the enzyme. pH. All the enzymes have an optimal pH. Amylase in the mouth is 6.5 to 7. Enzymes from the digestive juice or gastric juice, they have pH 2, <coughs> optimal pH. And this curve is showing how the rate of reaction improves by increasing the temperature, but only to a limit. Beyond this point, which in this example is 40 Celsius, the enzyme will denature. It's a protein, so you heat up the protein. You are cooking the enzyme, and the enzyme will lose structure. It will lose its function. It will not work very well. That's the effect of the temperature and an enzyme. That's one of the reasons that we consider high fever dangerous, especially for the nervous system, because this is what happens with the enzymes in the neurons. If the temperature goes too high, like 40 Celsius, some enzymes in the neuron will be denatured and that may bring seizures as a temporary consequence. It has to be controlled before it gets permanent. pH, these are the optimal pH for different enzymes. Amylase, salivary amylase, we said, is uh, optimal pH 6.57. Pepsin, optimal pH is 2. Pepsin is one enzyme found in the gastric juice. It's part of the gastric secretion. But we have different, different pHs, uh, different optimal pH. How the pH changes the enzymes? It will change the enzymatic conformation will change. If you add more hydrogens to an enzyme, it will change the structure. It will form hydrogen bonds. It will just unfold some proteins, some enzymes, and they will not work optimally. Now here, what are the cofactors and coenzymes? As I said, some enzymes need additional help, and that is given by some small molecules. Coenzymes mostly come from vitamins, water-soluble vitamins. How they work? They transport hydrogens. They help transporting hydrogen atoms. And the cofactors, cofactors are usually minerals like calcium, magnesium, copper. And they help to form the active site. When we do metabolism, we will mention some of these coenzymes like NAD, FAD. They derive from vitamin B, and they help 
many chemical reactions. That's how we represent the action of these cofactors. Like there's an additional way that these cofactors will work as we see this red element that is added to this particular reaction and there is a specific site for that and <coughs> that helps that helps to form the active the active site now some of these enzymes especially in the digestive system they have to be activated they are not active they have to be activated and the reason is that they may damage our own cells. In the digestive system, we have this enzyme called pepsin, which is produced in the stomach, pepsin. It helps to digest proteins, to break down proteins. But it is secreted, it is made and secreted in an inactive form, which is called pepsinogen. This pepsinogen will have to be activated into pepsin once it's in the gastric cavity on the inside the organ. If it's secreted active, it will just destroy our cells because it digests proteins. It will just eat our own cells. It has to be secreted inactive and then be activated. That activation is achieved by others, other compounds, other substances. Same thing happens in the pancreas. The pancreas produces very powerful enzymes to digest proteins, lipids, carbohydrates, but they are secreted inactive. Once in the small intestine, they are activated. If it happens before, the pancreas will be destroyed. And that's another factor that can change the speed or rate of a chemical reaction mediated by enzymes, the substrate concentration. If you increase more substrate, so the, rate, the rate will increase. It's simple, there's more substrate, more of the reaction will happen. But in enzymatic reactions, there is a limit for that, and that is called saturation because the enzyme will get saturated. Saturated by the substrates, there are too many substrates. And so the reaction reaches a limit, and we see a line. We see the curve going up and reaches a point at which there's a plateau, or remains at the same level. If you increase, if you add more of the substrate, increase concentration of the substrate, that would not change because the enzymes are saturated. How we understand this is like having one bus to transport 200 people and the bus has only space for 30. You keep adding more people, you're not going to change. The bus has a time to go back and forth, perhaps to return and get more people. But adding more people, you will not increase the speed of a reaction. You will not make the people getting faster to one place. It's just, like, just 30 at a time. Same idea here. Since the enzyme has active sites, there's just a number of substances that can be fitted into, and that's the point of saturation of an enzyme. Now, some reactions mediated by enzymes are reversible. So when an enzyme favors a reaction in one direction and the substrate and products change in both sides of the chemical reaction, the reaction may be reversed. May be reversed and uh, finding a point of equilibrium, like we see in this enzyme called carbonic anhydrase, which mediates this reaction. Water plus carbon dioxide 
given place to carbonic acid. The reaction is reversible. So if more water is added to this reaction, well, the reaction will be favored in this direction to produce more carbonic acid. But if carbonic acid is added to, re to the reaction, the, this reaction will be favored in this other direction. So depending on the amount of, of, of product of substrate, it will reach a balance. And if you recognize this chemical reaction is the one that we use as example of a buffer system. Bicarbonate, ion, carbonic acid. This is part of the buffer system, bicarbonate uh, uh, buffer system. Carbonic anhydrase is a very important enzyme that works regulated and balanced in this reaction. Metabolic pathways. At the beginning, I said the enzymes, the chemical reactions don't happen isolated. They're usually linked to many other chemical reactions. And uh, most of these reactions will happen in groups or pathways. Pathways because they go in one direction. They have a purpose. And in each step, sometimes, there are many steps, and in each different state, maybe different enzymes, as we see here. Let's use this as an example. If we have the initial substrates here in A, the goal is to reach this point, the final product. But to reach that point, there has to be many steps or many chemical reactions. And in each step, there may be a different enzyme. When we make um, the hormone that we mentioned earlier, testosterone or estradiol, sex hormones, starting from cholesterol, the cholesterol will not be, in one only step, be converted from cholesterol to testosterone. There are many different steps. In every step, there will be an enzyme, a different enzyme. That's exactly what we're showing here. The initial substrate and the final product. Sometimes these pathways are not linear. They are branched like we see here. It's a little bit more complex. The enzyme one will turn A to B and now the B will be turned into C by the enzyme 2. But here, the enzyme 3, it has two different types. And it may lead to D or D1. And in that way, we have two different final products, which are similar, but mediated by different enzymes. Many products may be produced from only one substrate. Like in the case of estrogens, which is a female hormone, starting with cholesterol, and the final product is estradiol, 117 estradiol, estriol, different products, starting from only one, because these pathways were branched like we see here. And this is something that may happen these metabolic pathways, which is called end product inhibition. You can see this, A to B, B to C, the different enzymes here, and at this point C, we have the branch. 3 and 3, 1 will get to different parallel pathways. But when this F1 is produced, this F1 will get accumulated. More of this is produced. This will exert inhibition to this enzyme. So this reaction will start happening slower. And this branch is favored. That's called end product inhibition because this end product is going to inhibit one of the enzymes on the pathway, favoring the 
reactions in the other fringe. And that loop reminds us of the negative feedback loop that we started in the homeostasis. This inhibition, end product inhibition, is called allosteric inhibition. Allosteric because it's going to, this product is going to bind to the enzyme. Bind the enzyme and changes the 3D configuration of that enzyme. If we change the 3D configuration of that enzyme, that will affect how the substance will fit and bind to the enzyme. And in that way, it's inhibiting that enzyme and that branch of the pathway is inhibited. And it's a way of regulation. It's how, it's like negative feedback loop, regulates and keep the balance of some particular product. That's how allosteric inhibition can be understood. The inhibitor is binding to the enzyme here and is changing the configuration so this substrate cannot fit into the active site. And it's exerting inhibition of that enzyme. That enzyme is not working, it's not favoring that reaction anymore. We see that in some problems which are congenital and related with production of enzymes. Yes. I'm not sure I understand what is the negative feedback loop. What? I'm not sure I understand what is the negative feedback. Oh, the negative feedback? We go back to this this one right here. This reaction goes in this direction. F is produced. Now when F is produced to a certain level, this F will inhibit this enzyme, and that will be the negative feedback. So it will control, no more of this F will be produced. This enzyme is blocked. But if this enzyme is blocked, this C will not go here anymore, it will go the other way, the other path. And more of this product will be made. That's how this particular inhibition works. And this is exactly the same thing that we mentioned about the same branches. In some cases, we have this branching A to B to C. At this point, it should go in both directions. But for some reason, congenital problem, this enzyme is not present, or this enzyme is defective. If this enzyme is a protein, that may be because of mutation of DNA that is not expressed well and the enzyme is defective. So if this enzyme is not present, so there will be no reaction in this direction. This pathway cannot be followed. And if there is not F, that may be the reason of that disease. This person is not making that particular product. Or if this is not going through, the pathway will follow this direction. And there will be excessive production of this other one. And the excessive accumulation of this may be the reason for this. There's a deficiency of an enzyme related with the metabolism of phenylalanine, which is an amino acid and leads to a problem called phenylketonuria, also known as PQ, PKU. It's explained by this same thing. There's a deficiency of an enzyme, so the person is not able to break down or use phenylalanine, the amino acid, and uh, we have a, uh, a problem. 
These enzymatic problems are not common, but they are present sometimes. These are examples of this. This is an example that I mentioned. The problem is called phenylketonuria, or PKU. An abnormality is the increase in phenylpyruvic acid. This is one of the products which is accumulated because the enzyme is not present. And that may lead to these problems, mental retardation and epilepsy in small kids. And there are a bunch of, of uh, uh, examples here. As I said, these problems are actually not common, but it may be seen. And they are explained by problems of the enzymes, the different steps in the pathways of um, chemical reactions. There are many things in physiology, they follow the laws of thermodynamics. And this may be a little complex to correlate sometimes, but there are basic principles like this one. Um, the first law of thermodynamics, which is physics, but involves also chemistry. Energy cannot be destroyed or created, only transformed. If I accumulate energy, or I'll say, let's make this balance, intake of energy in terms of food, in terms of energy is five units of energy, and I use four units of that energy, well, the difference works is here, energy storage, simple as that. But that's thermodynamics. I mean, the fact that I'm consuming five units and using only four, that doesn't mean that that difference one just disappeared. No, it is still here. It's stored as adipose tissue to the equivalent of one unit of energy that I'm storing for the future. Same thing when we, um, when we exercise. When we exercise, our muscles move. They use energy. But at the same time, we start sweating. We start sweating because the muscles are using a lot of energy, but that energy is also lost as heat. And that heat increases my body temperature which are regulated by sweating. So the muscles are using energy, not 100% for work, some percentage is producing heat, which is useful when we are in cold weather and we start shaking and having chills without heat is used to control the temperature. But everything is like this. Everything can be balanced, and input and output. Energy is not destroyed or created only transformed. And the second law of thermodynamics speaks about entropy, which is understood to the degree of disorganization. What we can get from here is this relationship between two types of chemical reactions called endergonic and exergonic. And again, this is what I was saying before, that the chemical reactions are not isolated. They are usually linked to many others. Let's make an example here of energonic and exergonic. We have a molecule of ATP, which is a molecule that stores energy. If the ATP is converted into ADP plus phosphate. ATP stands for adenosine triphosphate. And then I remove one phosphate represented by a PI, and the other part of the product will be adenosine diphosphate, only two phosphates. Well, I'm making this 
I'm releasing the energy here. Energy is released. But it happens that I have here glucose that has to be used and degraded. I need to turn this glucose, which has six carbons, and I want to split it into two products with three carbons each. I need energy for this. Where do I take the energy from? From this ATP. This glucose reaction needs energy, and that energy is taken from this other reaction. This ATP reaction is called exergonic because energy is released. But this glucose reaction is endergonic because for that to happen requires investment of energy. And that way these two reactions are linked and depend on each other. When I make a movement, contract a muscle, I need ATP. This happens. ATP is broken down, energy is released. Who takes that energy? Proteins of my muscles so they can contract and make the movement. So that's the concept of the second law of thermodynamics. Exergonic and endergonic reactions are linked to each other. And that is explained in more complex terms when we study thermodynamics, like the reaction of the universe turns to the entropy, to more disorganization than organization. And to organize something, we need energy. To disorganize something, we release energy. But that can be explained in terms of endergonic and exergonic reactions with this simple example. And in this way, many chemical reactions happening in the body. This is important when we get into the metabolism part of cell metabolism. Many of the reactions will happen in this way. And we understand how we make ATPs. To make ATPs, we need to get energy, capture energy from other chemical reactions. The example of photosynthesis is uh, used also to, um, to show this. Carbon dioxide and water, carbon dioxide and water, they don't combine spontaneously to give place to glucose. We need enzymes which this plant have, but we need energy which is provided by the sunlight. And we make this molecule coming from these two simple molecules. Same thing. This will be the reaction that needs energy and the energy is coming from the sunlight. The conclusion here is uh, chemical reactions, they are not isolated. They happen always linked, endergonic with exergonic, and that's how all the metabolism machinery keeps working all the time. When we die, we're not able to produce more ATP. Our muscles don't move anymore. If I put ATPs into their muscle, I can make the muscle move. And there are some experiments in, in physiology with muscles, single muscle fibers. We can get isolated fresh fiber, muscle fibers, which of course, the animal is dead, we just have the muscle. But that muscle still has the pro contracted proteins. And if I add ATPs and calcium, I can make that muscle contract under the microscope. I'm just adding energy to the reaction. Of course, it's just proteins and contraction, but uh, it's one of the things that we, that we do. So endergonic reactions, they require the input of energy. And in, term, in terms of thermodynamics, we can express in this way, the products contain more free energy than the reactants. But as I said before, the point is not to study thermodynamics. The point is to understand that the reactions are linked, endergonic and exergonic, and what they are in uh, what they mean in definition. And here is uh, uh, another example of um, the endergonic and exergonic reactions. As I was giving that example before, but here you have another example. Here you have the exergonic reaction, which is the ATP turning into ADP plus phosphate. 
energy is released and that energy is invested here in this other chemical reaction where the glutamate turns into glutamine but for that to happen we need energy and that is an endergonic reaction that's the way the chemical reactions in the biology environments will work And energy is used to make ATP in the cases of these reactions. We make ATPs by the same means. I can reverse the reaction, ADP plus phosphate, and I put energy here and I will make ATP. Where that energy is coming from? Well, other chemical reaction. That's the way I use ATPs, but at the same time, in another way, I'm making more ATP so I can store it for uh, further use later. And this uh, graph is to summarize that idea. Coupled reactions, that's how we call these endergonic and exergonic reactions happening all the time, like in the case of ATP. And notice that here we are mentioning those chemical reactions that we've been seeing for uh, many times before. ATP turns into ADP plus phosphate by hydrolysis. And we can make ATPs by dehydration synthesis. It's like a cycle, it's like a machine, always working, making ATPs, using ATPs, making more. Now the idea of a couple of reactions can be also used to understand what oxidation reduction uh, reactions are. Redox reactions, we call them in chemistry. But it's related to the transfer of um, electrons. And we say reduction when an atom gains electrons. We say it's reduced. Or oxidation when an atom loses an electron, and we say it's oxidized. In the graph, we show that process where the reduced compound A, reduced compound A, which has electrons gained, is oxidized, meaning losing electrons, and now turns into oxidized compound A. But where are those electrons going? They're not lost. They are taken by the oxidized compound B, which now is getting reduced, gaining those electrons into reduced compound B. So there's clearly a transfer of electrons from here, from the compound A to the compound B. But these two are coupled reactions, oxidation and reduction. We see this a lot when we make ATPs from glucose, the mitochondria. This happens in the mitochondria, transfer of electrons from one compound to another. Now when we see electrons, sometimes in the chemistry, they, instead of electrons, they use the hydrogens terms, and they say, oh, reduction is uh, gaining of hydrogens, oxidation is loss of hydrogens. And we say no electrons is the same thing. Is the same thing. And what we're gonna do, what we're gonna see in the metabolic pathways is this figure usually. This compound NAD, which is a cofactor, I mean coenzyme. This NAD is going to get hydrogens that are being transferred from this other compound. 
that's all we see here, two hydrogens, and we have this NADH plus hydrogen. So it's being reduced, it's gaining those hydrogens. But where are those hydrogens coming from? From this molecule. So this molecule is transferring hydrogens to NAD in the same way that in the other reaction, coupled reactions. And those hydrogens will be important in the mitochondrion. We'll see that when we get to that point, how these hydrogens will make, will work actually to produce molecules of ATPs by transferring energy. These are the compounds that carry, uh, carry molecules or carry hydrogens. NAD, FAD, they are coenzymes. They derive from the B complex, vitamin B. NAD comes from the niacin, B3. FAD comes from the riboflavin, B2. Very important compounds, coenzymes, and the transference of hydrogens for the production of ATPs, as we will see in the metabolic pathways. One example of how the NAD works transfer of electrons or hydrogens, we will see here. These hydrogens here, if we start here with this compound X linked to two hydrogens. Well, these two hydrogens will be transferred to NAD, and now they are here. This NADH plus H, later, in a different step, is going to transfer these hydrogens to the compound Y. And as a final product, we have this Y with the two hydrogens that initially were linked to the compound X. So NADH or NAD helps to transfer the hydrogen from X to Y. What is the importance of this uh, transfer of hydrogen? So these hydrogens, at the end of the pathway, we'll see how they are used to make energy and transfer that to molecules of ATP. Questions, comments? Okay, I think I saturated your brains enough. <laughs> If you notice, I try to uh, make highlights and try to get summarized summary points from each of the of the topics. Uh, if you read the book in these uh, these chapters, you get much much more, but probably will be more confusing at some point. So stick to the slides and try to get all those highlights. I've been recording these lectures, so you can get them later.